you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. We're going to finally move on from the genealogy and that long list of names. We're going to get to the main event today. We're going to spend two weeks in verses 18 through 25, and we're going to look at two different names that are given here for Jesus and try to see the significance of those names to the mission of Jesus and to our lives. So Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, God's word says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When, Jesus, when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Let's pray to the Lord together this morning. Heavenly Father, you tell us that the greatest commandment is to love you with all of our hearts, with all of our mind, and with all of our strength. And I pray that today, through your word and through the work of the Holy Spirit in us, in the word, that God, you would provoke just a response as that. That you would focus our minds and concentrate our thoughts on Jesus that we could love him with all of our minds. That you would focus our inner person, our inner man, our inner passion, our, our emotion, our zeal, our identity upon Jesus. That we would love him with all of our hearts. I pray, Father, that you would give us the discipline to be able to sit still and to focus ourselves and to, to rid ourselves of all of the distractions that are around us. That, Lord, in this moment, for these minutes, we would think about that baby that was born to the virgin that came to save us from our sins. That we would love him with all of our strength, with our bodies. I pray, O oh Lord, that today... That today you would lift the gaze of your people from all the troubles that they have in this world. From all of the distractions that are permeating their lives. So that Lord, for these minutes they would think, focus, love, feel, obsess over Jesus. And Jesus alone. We ask these things now in his name. Amen. You may be seated. you ever named a child, you know it's pretty nerve-wracking work, right? It seems so simple to, to pick out a name, and you got books and websites and, you know, TV shows. I think I was named after a Western. Um, so, you know, that, that happens. I always thought Cody was a pretty cool name, not a super common name. I always thought it was kind of neat. But you're sitting there, and you're thinking about, we, you know, we've done this three times now, and... You're thinking, this is who this person is going to be referred to all of their life. Like when this name is spoken, 
people are going to have certain thoughts and certain responses and thir- certain reactions. Like, this is going to be on their mail. This is going to be uh, on their test, on their SATs and ACTs. And by the way, let me just give an aside also from my name. Don't name your kid after the middle name, okay? It's, it's tough in college. Nobody knows who you are. And you call and try to get your AT&T bills straightened out, and you don't know what name to even use, right? Is this James L? Is this Cody L? Anyway, that's just inside. I love you, Mom and Dad. It's been fine. It's been fine. It's been fine. But you're, you're, you're picking out a name, and, and it's, it's, it's pretty tedious work. But it's something that you think about for a long time. As a matter of fact, I bet, I bet that if I were to go to every little girl... If I were to go to every teenage girl in our church, you already have some idea about what you want to name your kids one day. You already have it. You have it written, doodled down in a notebook, or you know, like we used to have book covers like these that we wrapped them in like Winn Dixie sacks. You know, like y'all remember that? Y'all know what I'm talking about. And 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 they would write. All the girls would write their their first name with a different last name. You know what I'm saying of him. And then they would have underneath that all the all the baby names. Like I'm going to name mine little Hunter and little Johnny and little Henry. And but let me give y'all a secret. Let me give y'all a secret. The boys they know they got names picked out too. They won't ever admit it. We could pin them down to, a ground, to the ground and put a gun to their head, and they would never acknowledge it. But they, they got some names. They, they got some names. Why? It was something that was put in us, the importance of a name. What was the very first job that humankind had in the Garden of Eden? Do you remember what God did? God brought all of, the, all of the animals, all of the creatures of the earth before Adam. And what did Adam do? He named them, right? That, that it was an exercise of dominion, of, of God's image bearers ruling over all that God has made. That in this exercise of giving each creature a name, it were in some sense reflecting God's image in them. That just as God is a creative God that has made all that can be seen, so now is mankind made in his image a creative person able to decide, to declare to identify, to name. Well, this is especially prominent in Jewish culture. To give a name in Jewish culture, you didn't just find something catchy, you didn't just find something that you kind of liked, or, or you didn't just think through, like, you know, I was a youth pastor, my wife's a teacher, so we have to go through all the rosters of the names that we can never associate with. You know what I'm saying? There's probably a reason there's not a lot of Cody's, because I came through the youth group here, Right? <laughs> So you have to go through all, you know, you know, no, 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 we can definitely not name them that. I'm not, I almost said a name, and I'm glad I didn't. I'm not going to say a name. But in Jewish culture, a name was given, and it was given as a foreshadowing of a person's character. It, it was given as an expectation of a person's lot in life and what they were expected to accomplish and who they were expected to be. That giving a, a child a name in Jewish culture was essentially giving them a job description for their life. It was setting out and writing a vision for who you hoped they would ultimately become, who you anticipated God would have for them to be. And there were times throughout the Bible that God would interrupt this process so that he himself would give a name to a child. 
Whenever there was a particular child of promise, a special son that was given, God himself would strip the parents of the responsibility and the ability to give the name and to assign the name. And he would assign the name directly. You can think about how this happens with Isaac. Do you remember this? Abraham and Sarah are going to have a baby. God's going to use them to make them into a great nature, uh, nation. And, and uh, God tells uh, Abraham, this is not going to be by your own doing. This is not going to be by your own ingenuity. This is not going to be through Hagar. This is going to be through Sarah. And do you remember what Sarah does when God says this? She's an old lady. She's 90 years old. You remember what she does? Ha! Right? You crazy, Lord. You crazy. What in the world? And, and she starts laughing out loud. You think an old sack of bones like me is going to have a baby? Like, you don't know how this works, do you, Lord? You don't understand biology, do you, Lord? You don't understand how all of this functions and works out, do you, Lord? And so she laughs. She's caught up in laughter. This promise cannot be fulfilled through me. It's an impossibility. Ninety years I've been barren, and now I'm going to have the son of promise. And then she has the baby, right? And God says that you're you're not going to name this baby. I'm going to name this baby. His name is going to be Isaac. Do you know what Isaac means? One who laughs. One who laughs. There's a double meaning there, isn't there? On one sense, he is. He is the response. You want to laugh at the Lord? You want to walk in unbelief? You want to walk by sight and not by faith? The Lord, the Lord will show you with his promises. The Lord will show you he will keep his word. The Lord will laugh and he will show you the foolishness of not believing that he is high and lifted up and seated upon the throne, reigning providentially over his creation. And then this little boy, this little boy is going to be a blessing to all nations. That is, he's going to be a source of laughter, a source of joy for this family and for all the families of the earth. See, there, you see over this, this pattern that occurs time and again throughout the scriptures where the Lord intervenes and he, he names the son. And he's naming the son because that son is a particular son of promise through whom he is unveiling his plan and he is redeeming his world and he is keeping his word. That climax is in Matthew chapter 1. That's exactly what the scene that we have playing out in Matthew chapter 1 where we are wondering, here we have this long list of names and he's saying there is a particular name. There is one name that is greater than all of the other names and it is the name of the Son of God. In fact, he gives one new name and he then refers back to one old name from Isaiah chapter 7. We're going to look at the new name today. We're going to look at the old name next week, and we're going to see why that really matters. What is it that's in a name? Why is it that God chose to give his son these names specifically? The first thing I want you to see as we look at the the new name is that Jesus has come, that's the name, Jesus has come to accomplish God's mission. Jesus has come to accomplish God's mission, that it's embedded within the very name that God has given to his son. Now, I really love the Matthew 1 account of Jesus' birth. Let me tell you why. There's really two accounts between, that give us Jesus' birth, Matthew, and, Matthew 1 and Luke chapter 2. Now, if you look and you put Matthew 1 side by side with Luke chapter 2, what do you see? Anybody know? 
One's a lot longer than the other one, right? Luke is a lot longer than Matthew. Matthew is a shorter-winded brother when it comes to summarizing details. But here's why I love this. Here's why I love this. Matthew tells us the birth narrative from whose perspective? Joseph's perspective. Luke tells us the, perspective, the, birth, uh, the birth narrative from Mary's perspective. And so I think there's something funny in that because you have in Matthew chapter 1 the man version. And you have in Luke chapter 2 the woman version. And if you think about the way that they're told, one's long and detail-oriented and flowery with, with songs and poetry, and one is the facts. If you go to Megan, Megan can tell you the placement of every child's first step. She can tell you when they had their first earache, like the date, the time, the location, like when she was saved or something. Like... She, she can go and she can identify every first word, all their, you know, like, like all the, the little difficulties they had, all their benchmarks. I go to the doctor and they ask me the birthday and I'm like a deer in the headlights. <laughs> well, Dad, how, how many times a night is he getting up? Puh, I don't know. Right? And I like to think that I'm an involved dad, but dads just aren't detailed people. We just don't think about it in that way. We're like kid healthy, kid well, kid provided for, kid giggling a little, kid happy. <laughs> right? Done. Mission accomplished, dad of the year, bring it on. Moms are going through the craft projects and getting the little hand Christmas trees and the reindeer and the, you know, identifying the, the outfit. They're doing the works. They're details people. So we come to Matthew and we have Joseph's story. And Joseph probably died as a young man from church tradition. That's what we understand happened. And so there's probably fewer details about that anyway when Matthew's composing his gospel and, and putting it together. But what we discern is that when we come into Matthew chapter 1, that Joseph is a man in crisis. Joseph is a man in crisis. Here he is. He is betrothed to a woman that is going to be his wife, a young teenage bride. And his young teenage bride has come up pregnant. And the only thing that Joseph knows about that circumstance is he isn't the daddy. And so in those days, an engagement, a betrothal was very different than an engagement in our days. It really meant something. It wasn't something that was easily broken or could just be uh, flippantly called off to, to be uh, betrothed to one another was to be legally married to one another. You weren't ceremonially married yet. You had not consummated the marriage yet, but legally in the eyes of the government, you were a married couple while she was still living in her daddy's house. He was preparing his house that he could bring his bride across town in the ceremony of the marriage. And so it had to be legally done. And a woman caught in the act of adultery according to the law of Moses was to be stoned to death. And so here is Joseph, and he's in crisis. He loves this woman. He's committed to this woman. He's, he's betrothed to this woman. He's, he's preparing his life savings to pay the dowry. He, he's preparing his house and getting all of his affairs in order so that he can bring her home. And she turns up pregnant. And now, what is he supposed to do? She's brought shame on him. She's brought shame on the family. She's, she's basically ended his whole vision of the future. You know how painful that is. He's suffering and coping and grieving loss on a level that many of us cannot even begin begin to comprehend. And then there's the visitation of an angel. The visitation of an angel. Remember, that's how all this got started with Mary. 
But an angel doesn't leave Joseph and lurch some months later. It says that at this point, Mary is found with child. It doesn't mean that she's been hiding it. It just means now she can be seen. This is a pregnant woman. So it seems like this is months into the pregnancy that, that Joseph's been wrestling with these things and figuring all these things out and trying to decide. And, and now she is around mama to be. And it is obvious to everyone that she is found pregnant. And Joseph has, has to do something. And so he resolves that he's going to divorce her quietly. And try to uphold whatever honor he can for her and treat her well. And we get insight into Joseph's character. But this angel comes in this moment of desperation, in this moment of, of dire straits in Joseph's life. And, she, and, he, and the angel comes and he says, no, 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 Joseph. The Holy Spirit has intervened here. The Holy Spirit has placed that, chi- that child in the womb of your wife to be the virgin. And this was to fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah. This was always expected, Joseph. You know your Bible. You know what God has said. You know what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Remember what he wrote in chapter 7. This was expected. You're going to be the daddy of the Son of God. He says, so when you go and when the baby is born, you have a responsibility. It was the dad's responsibility to pass on the family names to the son, to to assign that job description to the firstborn, to, to establish who he was going to be and the kind of character that he was going to have. But God strips Joseph of this responsibility. He says, no, this, like Isaac, is a son of promise, and you will name him Jesus. You will name him Jesus. And it comes down to verse 25, and we see that Joseph does just that. That he has that beautiful boy wrapped in swaddling cloths that are lying in the manger. And he declares, this will forever be Jesus. Now, why that name? Why did God endeavor to name his son Jesus? Why did he command that his son be named Jesus. Jesus was a very common name. It would not have stood out. It was not a unique name. There would have been little Hebrew boys and little Hebrew schools all over town with the name Jesus. It was the kind of name that you wanted because you see the name Jesus came with a heritage. The name Jesus came with with some markers that flagged in your mind to think about the kind of young man that this man could become, to think about the kind of person and the kind of responsibilities that he could bear. You see, Jesus is the, the Greek version of the Hebrew name Joshua. Joshua. So if you read the same name in Hebrew, it's Joshua. So they, they're, they're the same thing. And, and so that, that, that is to... Any Hebrew man or woman that would have heard the name Jesus, it would have triggered in their mind the thoughts of two very prominent Joshuas from the Old Testament. And by thinking about who those men were, we're able to begin honing in on exactly who God intended Jesus to be and what Jesus was to accomplish, what the mission was that was to be set before him. The first prominent Joshua that would have been triggered in the minds of of the Jewish people would have been the the successor to Moses, the Joshua that we find in Exodus and the Joshua that we find in the book that bears his name. The most famous of all the Joshuas, the one that is going to lead God's people out of the wilderness. They've been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years and yet it is this Joshua that is going to deliver them out of that wandering and bring them into the promised land. It is this Joshua that is going to be victorious over all of 
of the enemies of God in Canaan. And it was this Joshua that is going to march around the walls of Jericho. It is this Joshua that is going to deliver God's people into the promised land where they could enjoy what God had always intended for them to enjoy, where they could enjoy the fullness of God's goodness toward them. And so this is in their mind. This is in their mind when they think about Jesus. But there's a second Joshua that's very prominent in the minds of the Jewish people. Much more prominent probably than he is in our minds. But he's found in the book of Ezra. In the book of Ezra, what you have is you have the people of God returning from the exile in Babylon. And they come into Jerusalem and they find that their city is now in ruins. It's a shell of what it was. And you can imagine for generations they've just dreamed of getting back to Jerusalem and getting back to the temple and getting back and seeing their their beautiful city home, home. You know what it's like. You can be away for as long as you are want to and go to as many places that are wonderful that you want to go to. But there is, there is no place like home, right? You can smell it. You can taste it. You're, you're excited to see it. But they, they come over the horizon and their eyes fall to Jerusalem. And what they find is a city that is in ruins. The temple, the temple that Solomon built to the exact specifications that God had laid out. The temple that was built with the cedars of Lebanon that had the finest woods and the finest metals. Decimated. Blattened. The worship of God's people, that which they had longed to do. Finally, all of us are going to come together. Like us coming back after COVID. All of us coming together and we're going to worship together again. Except the church was hit by a tornado. Except the temple has been extinguished. And so there is a man, a high priest in the time of Ezra, a man by the name of Joshua. And Joshua is tasked with the responsibility of resurrecting the temple, of raising the temple back up so that he could reestablish the worship of God's people of God. And by establishing the worship of God's people of the monotheistic God coming out of the polytheistic Babylon, he is reestablishing the very cultural identity, national identity, religious identity of the people of God. And this helps us begin to understand why the angel gives us this description of Jesus' name. He gives us this description. You shall name, call his name Jesus. Why shall you call his name Jesus? For. The for always tells you what the reason is, the, 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 the purpose behind it, right? For he will save his people from their sins. The name Joshua, Jesus, means quite literally Yahweh saves. Yahweh saves. And so what he's saying here is that you are to take up like the Joshua's, the mantle of God's call on your life, on God's mission that has been set before you, that, that Jesus, in other words, came so that like Joshua, who ended the wanderings of Israel in the wilderness and brought them into the promises, so Jesus would come and he would end the wanderings of God's people once again and he would bring them and usher them into a place where they could enjoy the fullness of God's design and the fullness of God's intentions for them that they could once again walk in the promised land that was God's kingdom. Now you have to understand, they understood They understood sin much more holistically than the way that we understand sin. We think of sin as the only thing that's keeping us from heaven. They understood sin as being that which ruined everything good in life. They understood sin being the, the, the reason that they were faced with brokenness and suffering, the reason they were in this moment being oppressed by Rome. That's, 
why were originally the Israelites wandering in the wilderness? Because of the sin of their ancestors, right? of, their, of their fathers. Why is it in this moment that they are living under, under Roman oppression? Because of sin, because of the sin of their forefathers, of their ancestry. They're, they're now living, occupied by the Gentiles. Why, were the, the, why, why are we struggling with, with all of the cancer and, and the oppression and, and the, the abortion and the nastiness that is in the world? That, because of sin, because of sin. So what did they need their Savior to do? Not just to make life a little easier. Not just to make life a little simpler. Not just to give them some positive vibes. What they needed is to save them from their sin. What they needed was him to save them from their sin. That if he could deliver them from sin, he could make all other things new. All the other stuff would take care of itself. That fundamentally their issue, their problem was sin. If he was going to bring them out of the wilderness and out of their wanderings and into the promised land, then he was going to have to bring them out by delivering them from their sins. So Yahweh is going to save, and he's going to save them from their sins through the person of Jesus. That's why he's given the name. But it's not the only reason he's there. Just like Joshua, just like Joshua the high priest, Jesus has come that he might raise himself as the new temple of God, the new meeting place of the people of God with God, so that now without an intercessor, without a, a high priest, without a sacrifice, through Christ and through Christ alone, we could have unfettered, unobstructed access to God that we could truly worship him now in spirit and in truth. You remember that's what he told the Samaritan woman, a day is coming, a day is coming when that you will not worship on this mountain or on that mountain, but you will worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. And what is he saying? You're going to worship him through me. Through me. Why is it that we, that, that the Jews couldn't have unfettered access to God? Why is it that there was a holy of holies and there was, a, there was a curtain that separated them? Why is it that only the high priest could go into the presence of God one time, once a year? Why is it that if you went in with an unclean offering, that he would be struck dead in the presence of the holiness of God? It was because of sin. Sin was separating God's people from truly enjoying access to God, to be able to freely worship God. And so what has Jesus come to do? Jesus has come to save us from our sin so that we can enter into a relationship with God that is enjoyable and free, that we can worship literally in his presence, that we can go directly to him through access that is given to us through the true temple, Christ himself. He is the greater Joshua. Now you understand, this is a controversial message in Jesus' day. This is a controversial message. That's not the kind of Messiah that they were looking for. Let, let me give you, show you a hint in Matthew's gospel where we can see that this was a controversial message. At the end of Jesus' life, he's gonna be, the, the crowd is going to shout, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And they're going to take him and they're going to they're nail him to a cross. And while he's there and he's being derided and mocked by all of the crowd of people that have gathered there at the foot of the cross, I want you to listen to what they say. He saved others. You see the word? He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe him. If you see this in the original language, every single word that is from Matthew chapter 1 shows up again in Matthew chapter 27. That the very reason they are crucifying him is because he is presenting himself as the savior for their sins. But they didn't see themselves as being the problem. Rome was the problem. 
Everything else was the problem. The problem was all the problems on the, ex- on, on the exterior. All the stuff going on on the outside. It was the taxes they were paying. It was the oppressive government policies that they were being demanded. It, 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 was, it was the interruptions of their daily life. It was the inability to be able to come and go as they wanted to. It was, it was the ruler. It was the governor. It was the king. But Jesus' name? I've come to save my people from their sins. It implies that the problem's not out there somewhere. That the fundamental problem for Israel was not Rome. The fundamental problem for Israel was not Caesar Augustus. The fundamental problem for for, uh, Israel was not Pontius Pilate. The fundamental problem of, of Israel was not King Herod. The fundamental problem of Israel was themselves. They were sinners. And they, they internally did not love God with all of their heart, with all of their mind, with all of their strength. And there was a chasm between them and God that they were unable to breach. And so Jesus comes and he's presenting himself not as a political leader. That's what they wanted. Not as, not as a king that was going to lead a conquering army to go and overthrow the Caesar. That's what they wanted. He presented himself as a savior that said, come, follow me and die. Come and walk. My kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is not of this earth. My kingdom is not what you expect it to be. My kingdom is a greater kingdom that you have to enter and access by faith. Will you come and place your faith in me? And all of them to that responded in a resounding unison. Crucify him. Crucify him. Crucify him. If he wants to save us, let's see him save himself just first. But that's not just a controversial message back then, y'all. That's a controversial message right now. It is becoming increasingly out of vogue to believe that there is anything wrong inside of me. That the message that we have today is that there is greatness contained within me. There is goodness contained within me. I've just got to have the freedom to be able to let it out. That inside of me is all things right with the world, all things pure with the world, all things innocent with the world. And all of the problems are where? All of the problems are exterior problems. All of the problems are are financial problems. All of the problems are health problems. All of the problems are government issues and government oppression and taxes. All of the problems are not enough economic stability or economic opportunity. All of the problems are are what my parents did to me when I was growing up or, or the opportunities that I failed to have. All of the stuff is out there and how we are being wrong and what's happening out there. And the problem is in us. It's my heart, and it's your heart. See, what is implied when it says, when it says that he will save his people from their sins? What, what's implied in that? That you and I are sinners. That embedded within the very name of Jesus, embedded within his very, his very character from the get-go in his mission is that you and I are sinners and we need deliverance from that. We are drowning and we need somebody to rescue us. We are smothering and we need somebody to set us free. We need somebody that can overcome the nature of my heart and your heart to give us a new heart so that the problems out there aren't solved but the problem in here is. And if all the problems in here are solved, it is a down payment that one day, one day he is going to return and all the problems out there are going to be solved. This isn't a new controversy, though. 
We, we think all of these things are new discoveries when someone comes and says, no, 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 there's something good inside of you. We've just got to let it out. They're, they're, you're not a sinner by nature. You're not. We think those are new controversies, but, but y'all, it's not. It's exactly the kind of heresy that the apostle John was addressing in his first epistle. Listen to what he says. Verse 8. If we say we have no sin, he's talking about sin here. It, it's, it's given in a singular, not in plural. Not we have no sins, that we have no sin. He's talking about it comprehensively. That we have no sin nature, that we have no sin problem. Not an individual sin. We're not, we're not good people that do boo-boos. You know what I'm saying? We don't just make little mistakes here and there. No, we have sin. We have a comprehensive problem. If we say we have no sin, what does it say? We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. I would propose to you, brothers and sisters, that the greatest threat in your life is that you're deceived. That the greatest threat in your life is that you are walking, wandering in the wilderness when you believe that you're in the promised land. That you're wandering, believing that you are right with God when you are actually far from God. That there has been a message of deception that you have bought into the positivity of our age and the, and the good vibes messages that are out there and the Facebook memes that are floating through your page and you're buying into all of the cliches of the day and you are missing the reality that there is something that is broken inside of you. And if what is broken inside of you is not made right by the kindness of God and the grace of God and the power of God, then what is out there is irrelevant. So I wonder if there's a place for us to pause for just a second and ask, are you being deceived? Are you being deceived? Honestly, what, what, what kind of teachers are in your life? What, what kind of influences are in your life? Where are you getting your motivation? Where are you getting the vision for your life? Where are you getting the purpose for your life? Where are you deriving the, the vision and the purpose for your family? Is it from the word of God or is it from the expectations that everybody else has and all of the, the trappings of this world that they say they will make you happy? Because if it is, you are buying into a lie that all of the problems and all of the hopes and all of the scenarios are out there somewhere when the reality is, is what's going on in me. But here's the good news. Here's the good news. You see, the controversy of the day is that if I focus on the fact, on the reality of what Jesus' name implies, that I am a sinner that needs to be saved, that that is an oppressive message, that that is a message that holds me back, that that is a message that, that, that places me under some divine blanket, it would. If that was the whole message, it's not the whole message. In fact, it's not even the main thrust of the message. It's not even the main idea of the message. The main idea of the message comes in verse 9. Verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But then we get verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The main thrust of the message is that Jesus came to save us from our unrighteousness. He came to save us from the wickedness of our hearts. He came to save us from our sin. He came to make us what we could not be. See, implied within the very name of Jesus this name that God has assigned to him as the son of promise, as the fulfillment of all sons of promise, implied, embedded within that very name, is that we don't have to fix what we see. 
we don't have to fix our problem. Why? He's fixing it. He's fixing it. You see, th- this, uh, this original phrase here, for he will save his people from their sins, that ain't new. Did you know that? that y'all like that English? That ain't new. I want you to remember that. That's not, that, that didn't just poof onto the scene somewhere. That was a quote from Psalm 130. Now let's read that psalm together. O Israel, hope in yourself. O Israel, eat a better diet. O Israel, read more books. O, o Israel, watch more Oprah. O Israel, think, think happy thoughts. O Israel, send me some good vibes. O Israel, hope in the Lord. Hope in the Lord. Don't hope that you can turn over a new leaf. Don't hope that you can live a better life. Don't hope that you can be a little bit stronger and a little bit more chaste and a little bit more disciplined. Don't hope that you can be a little bit nicer and a little bit kinder. Don't hope in what you have to offer. Don't hope on what greatness might be hidden within you. Hope, hope, hope in the proven greatness of the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast, what's our word for the day? Love. And with him is plentiful, plentiful. Not, not, you're not going to be redeemed by just skating into heaven. Isn't that awesome? You're not going to be redeemed by just kind of like barely squeaking in the doors. You're going to be redeemed in a plentiful, abundant redemption. He's going to overpay for your salvation. However, sin is there, he's going to pay twice the price. He's going to overpay in his grace and in his mercy at the cost of his son that your redemption might be plentiful. And he will redeem Israel. Here's our phrase. He will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. That is, he will save his people from their sins. If you were to read this in Hebrew, do you know what it would say? He himself. He himself. That he himself will redeem Israel. Redeem, pay the price. He himself will pay the price to save his people. He himself will pay the price for the sins of Israel. He himself, Jesus did not come to establish moral teachings. Jesus did not come to establish a better way of life. Jesus did not come to establish an ethical standard. Jesus himself came to pay the price of your redemption and of my redemption that from my sin, from all the oppression of my brokenness, from all the sufferings that I know, from the evil that is within me, from the, from the nastiness that is embedded down in my own heart, it might be paid in full with a plentiful, abundant, overpaid redemption. He himself took care of all the problems. I don't have to fix it. Second, the second reality that's embedded within the name of Jesus. Not only did he himself come and pay it, but he has made us part of the who. Here's what I mean by that. He says, he says in verse 1, or you can say it again, Israel is here, but in chapter 1, verse 21, what does it say? For his people. For his people. Now, it's really, really, really important that we understand what it means by for his people. He came to save his people's sin. Not everybody's sin, his people. Not the world's sin, not the universe's sin, his people's sin. I don't know about y'all, I hope I'm in this people. 
I want to be in his people. It matters everything what he meant by his people. And I think our first inclination is to go right here to Psalm 130 and say, isn't that Israel? Isn't that Israel? And that's exactly the question that Matthew wants you to ask when you're reading his gospel. Matthew's gospel is written to whom? It is written primarily to Jewish Christians. And he is wanting them to think about the holistic nature of God's mission through Christ. And as he's revealing it, as he's, re- re- he's, he's pre- presenting a question here in chapter 1, who is his people that he's going to answer over the next 28 chapters? And I just want to like read ahead just a second so that you can see who his people are. Matthew chapter 8. You remember the scene? Remember what's happening? Matthew chapter 8, there's a Roman centurion there. A Roman centurion. That means he's a Gentile man. That means he's a man that would be outside of Israel. That means he is a man that would be outside the promise. That means that you would not at first think that this is his people, that he would be excluded from the salvation that the Messiah came to present, except except Jesus marvels at the faith of the centurion. And he says, not in all of Israel have I seen a faith such as I have seen in this man. And then he says these words, I tell you, many will come from east and west. That is the Gentiles. That is you. That is me. And reclines at the table with whom? With Abraham, with the Jewish forefathers, Isaac, Jacob, the sons of the promise. In where? The kingdom of heaven. While the sons of the kingdom, the sons of Israel, the the birthright of Israel will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Here's what he's saying. I am establishing a new Israel. I am establishing a new people of God. And you will not enter it by your lineage. And you will not enter it by your ancestry. In fact, some of those born in the line of Abraham will not be welcomed by Abraham into the kingdom of heaven. They will be cast into outer darkness. But there will be people all the way in the furthest end of the east and all the way in the furthest end of the west and they, they will be embraced in the kingdom of heaven by Father Abraham because they are my people. This is what it means that Jesus is kicking open the floodgates with a plentiful redemption that is available to every single person who needs to be saved by their sins. The question is, the question is, will you enter through him as the temple that has been raised that gives you access to God? See, God's mission, God's mission being accomplished through Jesus is to bring peoples from all nations to himself, that they might enjoy his presence and love his presence and know his presence and revel in his presence. And the way that it was accomplished is that he himself came to do it. It reminds me of a story I heard about a man. This is a man uh, named Ross, and his last name is escaping me at the second. But he went and he swam he decided he wanted to break the record for the longest open sea swim in the history of the world. And so what he endeavored to do is he endeavored to swim 1,700 miles, the full circumference of all of Great Britain. And his feet would not touch dry ground the entirety of the time. And so in 2018, it took him 157 days. And I don't know if y'all, y'all know much about the weather there in Great Britain. It's not balmy Key West. You know what I'm saying? It's chilly up in Great Britain. And he spent so much time out in the water, and his feet went so long from being sta- from, uh, without standing on dry ground that the arches of his feet actually fell out. That, that he was in the salt water for so long that pieces of his tongue began to rot and fall off of his tongue. 
He was at one point stung in the face by a jellyfish, swelling him to the point of being past recognition. And yet he kept swimming. And he kept swimming. But he says that as he began to get on the final climb home and he was on the, and, and he came around the corner, he said, I had no energy. I had no ability to keep going. I was, I was not going to make it to the end. But he turned around the corner with the home stretch and there were 300 other swimmers that met him out in the waters of Great Britain in the middle of November. And he says, on that day, I made it to shore. But I didn't make it to shore on my strength. I made it to shore on their strength. I didn't make it to shore on my energy. I made it to shore on their energy. That I, left to myself, would never have made it. And I want you to know, that's a picture of Jesus. That's a picture of Jesus. Jesus didn't leave us out swimming in the open sea. Jesus didn't leave us out swimming by our own strength and by our own energy. He himself came to us. He himself swam out to us and he went through all of this mess that we know and he swept through, swam through all of these turbulent waters that we face and he came to us that we might be welcomed home, welcomed home by his strength, by his energy, for his glory. And so this morning, this morning there's an invitation that is embedded within the very name of Jesus. Will you allow him to bring you home? Will you allow him to bring you home? Will you come to him by faith and stop trying to turn over a new leaf and be a better person and live by a moral code? Will you come to Jesus and allow Jesus to bring you home? Let's pray to the Lord together. Thank you for watching or listening to one of our sermons. We would love to have the opportunity to connect with you one-on-one. We are not a perfect church, but we are a joyful church, and we want to help you increase your joy in Christ. We would love for you to come and worship with us one day soon. You'll be able to find information about our worship services, about who we are, what we believe, what we do, and what we're hoping to accomplish on our website at ironcity.org. And we would invite you to go and to check out all the information there. We look forward to seeing you soon.